Welcome to the Public Health Power Hour podcast, a recording of live conversations with public health experts on the most important global health issues. I'm Steve Hamill, Vice President of Policy Advocacy and Communication at Vital Strategies. We're a global health organization and we're reimagining public health. At Vital Strategies, we believe that public health is everything that surrounds you that makes great health possible. That means clean air and water, access to medicine and quality care, healthy food and places to get exercise, and removing bias and discrimination in healthcare. Here on the Public Health Power Hour, we get together to look at how the world around us shapes our health and how we can shape the environment so that everyone everywhere has the potential for great health. And if you want to join our conversations live, please follow us on Twitter under the handle VitalStrat. Hello, and welcome to today's Public Health Power Hour. I'm Jackie Drope, Director of Reset Alcohol at Vital Strategies, a new initiative launched just last month to support governments around the world in tackling one of the leading global killers. I've spent my career looking at the connection between health and public policy, including around the impact of harmful products like tobacco. But like many of you listeners, I still have a lot of questions about alcohol and public health. On today's episode called Untangling Alcohol, Making Sense of a Leading Global Killer, I'm really pleased to be joined by three experts who will help answer some of these questions. Our first guest is Aaron Schwid, an international public health and human rights attorney and the legal director of policy and programs at Vital Strategies. Welcome to the Power Hour, Aaron. Also here today is Olivier Van Diemen, award-winning investigative journalist and author of the book, Heineken in Africa, a multinational unleashed. Welcome, Olivier. And last but not least is Pubudu Sumanda a health promotion specialist, alcohol policy advocate, community organizer, and civil society activist. Pubudu is the international vice president at Movendi International. Welcome, Pubudu. And now to our main discussion. It's a huge topic, but we're going to try to start to uncover the underlying connection between alcohol and the widespread health, social, and economic harms it causes. We want to look at why the harms of this product, which is the largest killer of young people between ages 19 and 49, are so often overlooked. We also want to explore the role of the alcohol industry. Throughout our discussion, we'll also consider the policies and interventions that work best to reduce alcohol harms. Maybe can, we can start with you, Erin. Why alcohol? Why now? Help us understand these issues. Sure. Thanks, Jackie. Um, if you just start with looking things from a big global picture, you see immediately how problematic this product is. Worldwide, there are 3 million deaths every year that result from alcohol, which is about more than 5% of all deaths. Similarly, if you look at the global burden of disease and injury, uh, again, about 5% can be attributed to alcohol. It's a causal factor in more than 200 diseases and injury conditions. And the way I see it, uh, there's really two separate but kind of related categories of harm from alcohol. First, there's the the kind of acute effects that come from because alcohol is an intoxicant, gets you drunk. And that's things like alcohol poisoning, injuries, falls, drowning, drink driving, um, increases in gender-based violence and other forms of violence like homicide. Suicide is a huge problem. And then there's also the, just the consequences of other risky behaviors, like an increase in 
STIs, uh, and other effects. So these are all made worse by heavy episodic drinking or binge, binge drinking. There's also um, a cumulative effect of drinking, which uh, the alcohol leads to um, cardiovascular disease, high blood pressure, heart disease, stroke, but also a huge factor in liver disease, digestive issues, and then a host of uh, cancers that go up and down the body you just fall from your mouth, throat, esophagus, liver, colon, rectum. I mean, all of these problems go up the more you drink, even if you never kind of get drunk or black out like they do for the acute effects. So the consequences of this whole, uh, these harms just ripple out into the community. It drains our medical resources. It weakens our workforce. It crushes opportunity for youth. It destroys family, slaughters people on the roads, on and on and on. Um, but, but one thing I've noticed, and, th- and this is very similar to the situation with tobacco 20 years ago, is that the, the harms are so ubiquitous, so vast, that we as a society have come to accept them as inevitable. Humans have been drinking since the beginning of time. It's part of our culture. So we just have to accept the consequences of that. And this makes it a very difficult environment to move policy forward because policymakers feel like uh, laws can't change behavior. So we all have to start to think about how do we change our mindset on what we're willing to accept. One thing I think about is like before a big event, like a wedding, if you were to go to the host's of the wedding and ask them to write down a number of how many of their guests they think would be acceptable to die at their wedding or on their way home from their wedding. How would the host change their behavior? Would they reduce the open bar? Would they provide roads home for everybody? What would they do to make sure that um, people don't die? Same with the bar. If you ask how many of your patients uh, would you be willing to uh, allow to die every year from drinking at your establishment? What number would that be? I think most people, if they phrase the question that way, would say the number should be zero, but they, you need to take steps to ensure that that number stays at zero. And I think our governments really need to ask themselves the same questions. We as society, our representatives need to ask ourselves the same questions. How much of this harm are we willing to accept? And and what steps are we going to take to ensure that the number of deaths and disease and heartbreak caused by alcohol is as close to zero as possible. And we really need to just reset our standards for what's acceptable and then make policy changes to match. That That's a great way to present it, Erin. Thank you for outlining that. I, you know, what has really struck me as I've started working in alcohol is how much it harms both people who use it and people who don't use it. Um, so, we know now that there, well, we've always known there are interventions that we can take to reduce the harms of alcohol. Uh, could you speak to those and, and to the initiative that Vital Strategies have, is leading to get some of these interventions started? Yeah. Um, I think, for, well, first, it's important to take a step back and think about alcohol and how it's consumed and realize it's consumed in a whole bunch of different contexts by different people. There's different products. Some people drink socially, some drink alone, some drink with meals, some drink part of cultural and religious ceremonies. Um, there are also different types of alcohol, beer, wine, liquor, and a huge variety of locally produced alcohol products of all kinds of different strengths made from basically every fruit and grain and root uh, in the world. Someone's tried to turn it into alcohol. 
And so the, the problem is really complex. And so if you try to approach it using only one type of intervention, you might make a dent in some of those, but there's no way you're going to make a dent in all of them. And so it's really important to take a comprehensive approach using multiple different policies to really attack the problem. And, and when you do that, you start to see real synergies. So WHO has introduced a, a package that they call um, the, the SAFER Technical Package. And SAFER stands for five different um, key interventions that will really make a difference, especially if you enact all of them uh, synergistically. So S is strengthen restrictions on alcohol availability. A is advance and enforce drink driving countermeasures. F is uh, facilitate access to screening, brief interventions and treatment. E is enforce bans or comprehensive restrictions on alcohol advertising, sponsorship, and promotion. And R is to raise prices on alcohol through excise taxes and pricing policies. And so these there are other interventions out there, but these are kind of the core best buys, if you will, that if you really invest in, um, we know they're evidence-based and you, you, we know we'll see uh, results. Um, are there ones that we should start before others? Uh, well, we can talk a little bit about um, our initiative and some of our focus. Um, I think every country context will be a little different. I don't think there's a, a one-size-fits-all, out-of-the-box policy playbook that every country should follow. But there are some measures that we know um, are more affordable, that are likely to have a, a, a big uh, impact, that maybe require less of a heavy burden on implementation or staffing. So just depending on the, the capacities and resources of different governments, you might want to prioritize certain ones over another. Well, that actually is a good segue to Pubidu and, and thinking about this at the country level. What, could you give us uh, some examples of how Sri Lanka is tackling uh, alcohol and what are your pro policy priorities and why? Yeah, uh, being a developing country, and uh, we are now facing a kind of economic crisis too. So uh, the harm done by alcohol is actually unbearable for the economy and for the society both. So when it comes to the policy priorities, uh, the one big thing is actually the control and reduce the harm done by alcohol use, both for the health and for the economy, uh, because uh, we have been talking about the health harm that we know that, and the biggest at the moment for the country is the economic harm, because the people spend at least one third of their income for alcohol. So the policy priority for us is to reduce the kind of negative impact of alcohol. And at the same time, we need to... Uh, protect our young ones and the children from the initiating this kind of harmful uh, uh, beverage. So therefore, the delay the initiation as well as discourage people going into the habit, also a kind of very big policy priority. And on the other hand, so uh, socially, I think alcohol is the kind of product that harm to the others than to the user most of the time. So therefore, the harm to the society is uh, huge in our countries. So therefore, our next policy priority is to reduce the harm uh, done by alcohol to the society at large. 
So that includes the gender-based violence and perpetuating and creating poverty and family harmony. All those things are very, very important for us. Uh, I would like to mention here the most important policy priority for our countries, uh, especially lower and lower middle income, that is to increase the tax to the level that people can really, uh, uh, you know, to feel the kind of price. So we call it increasing the price through increased taxation is very, very important because that is the most sensitive factor for people. As we have lots of poverty in the country and people always looking for a kind of earnings, the income, and people do not have much money to spend for the essential things. But unfortunately, the industry knows how to get people into the habit. So therefore, increasing the taxes and uh, imposing a kind of uh, taxes to the level that people can feel is very, very important. So for to backing that, we need kind of research, we need kind of analysis, all these things are kind of policy priorities for us at this moment. That, thank you for outlining. I think that's right on. And But it, it sounds complex. Mm-hmm. And I'd, I'd like to know a little bit more about the types of actors we need to involve in order to do all of this type of work. Yeah, uh, when it comes to the type of the actors that uh, uh, we are happy that the health professionals, health sector, Ministry of Health is always there and they know the harm done by alcohol. Uh, They know the magnitude of the problem and how it affects the public health. So the Ministry of Health is a very big actor. And at the same time, the civil society in our countries can do a lot. So that can be youth organizations, women organizations, children's clubs, and many more. So the social activists. So they are the other kind of actors. And at the same time, we need professionals and academics to come with the kind of, you know, uh, backing to what we want to do with the kind of research and sometimes studies done. So that is that. And the, finally, the most important actor in this uh, initiative is the Ministry of Finance. Ministry of Finances in most of the developing countries, we know by experience that uh, historically uh, they have a kind of good relationship with the corporate sector. So the alcohol industry is one big corporate uh, giant in that sense. So the Ministry of Finance is the organization and the body and the authority to uh, which actually uh, can uh, adapt kind of finance and the fiscal policies. So that therefore, uh, those uh, finance people, finance ministry, excise department, those are very important actors uh, in this scenario to implement a kind of better effective alcohol policy. That's very comprehensive, thank you. Uh, And and it just shows you the, the breadth of different stakeholders that we need to involve. Aaron mentioned a little bit earlier that every country is a bit different. Uh, they have different alcohols that they might produce or, or manufacture. Um, do you want to speak to anything that uh, elements of alcohol that are unique to Sri Lanka? Uh, 
Yes, Jackie. I'm happy that you asked that question because there are things that which is which is sometimes unique to our countries when it comes to alcohol problem. If I give you one example, in my country, uh, 85% of the alcohol users, they use spirits because we don't have a wine culture here. We don't have a beer culture of much. So uh, the unfortunate thing is, as because people are drinking spirits, it is like they drink to get drunk. So the consequences are very severe and very unfortunate most of the time. And the other thing is, not like wealthy part of the world, so when people spend money for alcohol, it is a big proportion from their daily income. So that is also a big problem. That is what uh, we always say, that is why we always say that alcohol use create poverty in our parts of the world in my country, in Sri Lanka. And at the same time, that perpetuate poverty. People lock into the poverty and because of the habit, they can't getting out of it. So those are very important uh, kind of factors when it comes to alcohol problems in my country. Wow, yeah. That's that's even more complex. And, um, and I do know, having spoken to many countries in the past few weeks, that... It is a different alcohol for every country, and we have to really understand the local context. So thank you for that. I know you've been involved and are, are getting more involved in the Reset Initiative through Movendi International. And I, I'd just like to you to take a moment to reflect on um, how a, an, an initiative like Reset can benefit a country like Sri Lanka. Actually, uh, that is very important because in our countries, uh, the reset kind of initiative is very, very uh, important and essential because even though sometimes we know what to do, but the biggest issue that we have is a kind of resources. Like uh, when we want to increase price by increase taxes, we need to do uh, research, we need to do studies, we need to do more analysis, and we need to do advocacy. So uh, the reset kind of initiative, uh, we strongly feel that help us to implement all the safer uh, components in our countries. So, uh, and as I said that sometimes we know what to do, but sometimes we don't have much support to do this. And sometimes we do not have much uh, uh, backing from the international community and with a kind of other academics in the field and in the world. So the research uh, initiative, we strongly uh, feel it is very, very important because especially uh, we have been talking about the health consequences, health harm, and how to prevent that. The public health experts have been working for that. But when it comes to the research, research we strongly believe that help us to get into the finance kind of sector and to increase taxes. So that is, that is not a kind of easy task in our countries, as I said, because industry also have doing lots of work in, inside the country and with the governments and policymakers and politicians. So, but at the same time in our countries that they also need a kind of better understanding about effective taxation policies. So we believe that the reset will bring us those knowledge in one sense, and at the same time, the practical implementation parts of 
how our kind of countries can implement such policies. So therefore, I think that is very, very important in this decisive movement in our countries. Uh, absolutely. And we're, we're hopeful that we continue to build on these global initiatives, get more resources into alcohol policy, and can start to tackle all of these issues at the, at the country level. I'd like to pivot a bit right now and, and turn to Olivier and ask you some questions about uh, the industry. And I'm going to start first. And, and anecdotally, last week, I was talking to someone who said, uh, you know, I wish that we had a big uh, alcohol like we do a big tobacco. And I thought, oh, that's really interesting because this person thought that, you know, alcohol is not a big industry, that it's all these little industries. Could you speak to what big alcohol is? Yeah, big alcohol is what some people call the, the big multinationals who, who dominate uh, the, the global markets. I've looked personally most into the, the beer industry and specifically on the African continent, and that's a very good example. Uh, the beer industry globally, uh, there are four companies uh, having almost 50% of the whole worldwide beer markets. Maybe that's changing a little bit now with craft beers, but that was uh, up until recently, that was the, the percentage. And in Africa, it's even stronger. You have four companies. Heineken is one of them. The other ones are AB InBev, Castel, a French company, and Diageo, a British company. And uh, two of them kind of work together. So you basically have three companies who dominate more than 90% of the whole African beer market. So that means they're very powerful players. In your book, uh, Heineken in Africa, a multinational unleash details your observations of the relationship between the alcohol industry and governments in Africa. Can you tell us more about what you learned? Yeah, um, I learned that uh, the alcohol industry in Africa has, has very strong ties uh, to governments. It's very hard for many of the governments to impose legislation on the companies. It's often the companies uh, and Heineken are quite free to do whatever they like to do, basically. If you, if you look at the example of a small country, it's maybe the most extreme example, but it's a good example. Uh, Burundi is a small country in Central Africa. And the ties between governments and Heineken uh, in that country are so are, are really uh, impressive. Uh, if you look at, for example, uh, the governments, the state has a 40% share a stake in the beer company. And the beer company there is, uh, it has a kind of a monopoly position. There are no real competitors. And uh, Heineken is so big there and the economy is so small that Heineken represents 10% of the economy. So imagine a beer company representing 10% of your uh, GDP. It's, it's, it's really incredible. So basically what, what opposition leaders have told, it's, it's a very autocratic country. Huh? It's, it's on the brink of a civil, the brink of a civil war. It's, it's a very bad situation there. What's, what many people have told me is that basically this, this autocratic regime relies on Heineken for its survival. So uh, 
it, it shows how 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 important the um, yeah how, how direct the links between a company and, and government can be. So it's not in the interest of government to to regulate uh, a beer company like like Heineken. They they are basically uh, yeah they rely on on this company for for their own survival. To give you another example from Burundi. When the president, the the former president, wanted to run for uh, a third term, which was unconstitutional, it was actually asked to the constitutional court to to rule whether the president could still run. He wanted to change the constitution, but he couldn't do that. Uh, so in the end, it was up to the constitutional court to decide: Can this president have a third term? The constitutional court didn't want to do that at first. And then actually um, the chairman of the constitutional court, so one of the most important judges in Burundi, was given a position on the board of Heineken in Burundi. Then actually the constitutional court ruled in favor of a third term for the president, so an autocratic president, a dictator you can call him if you want. Um, and then the chairman of the constitutional court got promoted to being the chairman of Heineken as well, the chairman of the board of Heineken. So formally in Burundi from 2015 to 2020, Heineken was under the leadership of one of the most important judges of the country. It's, it's crazy, but that's the sort of things that are happening. Wow. That's really outrageous. Um, would, would, any of the other speakers will like to build on that in terms of industry interference and what's happening. Jackie, I would like to add similar, a little bit of similar thing. In my country, the Dutch embassy, uh, in the Orange Day, which is actually related to women and the women's uh, kind of, you know, uh, uh, the, the violence, whatever. In the Orange Day, they got, they got a kind of uh, support from the Heineken. And in their... In their social media page in the Dutch embassy, they showed that Heineken, uh, the beer logo and the, uh, the name, and then they say that they are doing something good. So it's a kind of joke for us in my country. So because the beer and the alcohol, that caused lots of issues to women. And women are actually, in my country, 96% of the women are lifetime abstainers. But the kind of problems they face because of the husband's drinking. So it's huge. But the Heineken is trying to, you know, the kind of uh, color wash they are, what they are doing in the country by putting a kind of uh, uh, sponsorship and support for the Orange Day. So, so that then actually we had a lots of uh, campaigns against it. And finally, the ambassador actually asked us to have a discussion with her. So we went there, we had a discussion and a good message for you, Oliver. I mentioned about your book with her and she said that I have read every sentence in that book. So, <laughs> so they are very aware about what you have been doing and, but they are doing all the bad practices in our countries too. Uh, so what can we do? What, what as a community can we do to, to, to tackle this challenge? Um, well, maybe I can talk a little bit about uh, some more details about our initiative and um, how we're trying to, to promote alcohol. So we at Vital Strategies 
um, have just really promoted a new, it's called the Reset Alcohol Initiative. Kubudu referred to it and Vital Strategies is leading it, but we're collaborating with Movendi, with WHO, with the Institute for Health Research and Policy at the University of Illinois, Chicago, Global Alcohol Policy Alliance, and uh, the NCD Alliance. Um, and uh, this initiative, well, first of all, it's important to say we are not funded by the alcohol industry. We have no contact with the alcohol industry. So we can really push forward uh, evidence-based policies that are really going to be impactful. And what we're working to do is, is to find partner governments who are, who are excited and ready to work on these initiatives and really willing to push forward policies that work. And the, the ones that we're hoping that they work on are, first of all, taxes, so trying to increase the prices of the products uh, to dissuade people from heavy drinking, as Pabudu talked about, it's, it's one of the most effective ways to do it. And it's cost effective. You actually make money uh, through taxes. Um, and then the other ones we're hoping is to reduce the availability of the products by limiting days or hours of sales or increasing the licensing restrictions. And then finally, it's to restrict alcohol uh, advertising, sponsorship, promotion, all, all forms of, of marketing. And if you hit those three things, or even a couple of those things, um, you can really make a, you, you can really make a dent in the project. It's super ambitious. Um, we're trying to see policy wins in just under three years, which is, which is a very ambitious task. Um, but we're, we're hoping, um, our partners in government, um, can, can work, uh, across the whole of government to really come together to to make a difference in this area. Thanks, Sarah. And this is such a rich discussion, and I feel like we're only scratching the surface in this this short talk. Um, and in talking to the three of you, also just makes me realize the different types of stakeholders we need at the table, from journalists to policymakers to uh, advocates and researchers. Uh, can I just turn to you all for some last reflections based on what you heard from each other uh, before we wrap up? I'll start with you, um, Aaron. Uh, sure. So I think my last reflection is the alcohol industry invests billions of dollars in marketing to blanket uh, our environment with references to alcohol. It's in music, it's in movies, it's on every billboard, it's on every mall. They make it feel like everyone everywhere is drinking all the time. And that's their strategy to make it normalize. And we can take steps to denormalize that by reducing marketing, by limiting the availability, and, and um, again, reset what's, what's actually the case, which is in most countries, most people don't drink period, not to mention on a regular basis. But if you were to ask people who drinks and how much, most people would say everybody drinks. And that's, again, it's because of the industry normalizing it. So we need to think about how do we present people what they actually want, which is uh, a world where alcohol harms are, are not tearing us down. Thank you. Pubidu? Industry, the alcohol industry what they do not like is the policies. They always try to uh, avoid the policies developing in countries. And actually, 
I I can say that they are doing their best to weaken the existing policies in a way, and at the same time they are dragging the policy development process. They are delaying it at the same time, and if something is happening positively, that they are trying to derail it. So industry is doing lots of things to weaken and and upset the policy development process in countries so because they don't like it so therefore i think the civil society uh, has a big role to do here and at the same time that uh, we have to work together like civil society the government the policy makers academics and i'm really happy that oliver is here so the media also has to do a big part here so we can win it only we have a kind of togetherness with all of us to getting together so the building coalitions that is the way to deal with uh, and to tackle with the alcohol industry because they have experience and they have lots of uh, brains hired to you know the buckle everything that we do so therefore it is very good to be strengthened with the uh, lots of groups to work together Great, thank you. And Olivia? Uh, first of all, I, I would like to stress that I'm not a campaigner myself. I'm not an activist uh, against uh, the alcohol industry. Um, to be honest, uh, I like to drink a beer or two uh, every now and then. But um, I am quite allergic to to, um, to the hypocrisy that I've often seen from, from the beer industry and specifically of the, the company that I've looked into most, uh, Heineken. Uh, like Pugudu said, the industry doesn't like policies. And what you see in Africa is that the industry actually managed to write the policies sometimes uh, themselves. And Heineken has tried to do this in Nigeria as well. They actually write policies in such a way that they're not harmful to their own interests. So they know that countries would like policies, so they write them uh, to move the policies in, in their best interest. And what I've seen and, and what I've become uh, allergic to is, is the, the plea of companies like, like Heineken for self-regulation. They say it's not in our interest uh, to have drunk people. That's, that's not a good advertisement for, for, our, uh, for our products. We prefer to have uh, 10 people drinking one beer instead of one person drinking 10 beers. But the reality, of course, is that Heineken would like to have, would prefer 10 people drinking 10 beers. And if you look at uh, reality, it's they rely heavily on heavy drinkers. I think there's a study from Britain saying that uh, if, if you take out all problem and heavy drinkers, the, the industry merely uh, has succeeds in, in having about 30% of its turnover. So they heavily rely on those problematic and heavy drinkers. So I think this this self-regulation, and, and many people believe, actually, I, I don't think in, in this platform that, that many people will believe the, the, the self-regulation, the claims of Heineken, but outside people believe that that's the industry has the best interest for for other people as well in their minds and i yeah i think it's really important to uh to move away from that thank you well there's clearly a lot for all of us to do um i'd like to thank you our guests uh Pubudu, Olivia van Beemen and Aaron Schwid for this eye-opening discussion on alcohol and public health I'd also like to thank our listeners for tuning in. 
If you enjoyed our conversation, please subscribe to the Public Health Power Hour and leave us a rating um, on your favorite platform like Apple or Spotify. It will help other listeners find us. I'm at Jackie Drope, and I thank you for joining us. Thanks again for joining us for this episode of the Public Health Power Hour. We hold these live conversations several times a month on Twitter Spaces. Follow us at VitalStrat on Twitter to join the conversation in real time. We'd love to see you there. To learn more about how Vital Strategies is reimagining public health, go to www.vitalstrategies.org. I'm Steve Hamill with Vital Strategies. Join us next time on the Public Health Power Hour.